The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We, uh, in our last study, we looked at monotheism and the Trinity. And I said that technically the Jews, they're not monotheistic. Because monotheism is based on the belief that there's only one God. And the Jews believed in other gods. I think the first commandment implies that there are other gods. The Lord told them, you shall have no other gods before me. Would it make any sense to you if I said, listen, during the service, I don't want anybody flying around the room. You could go with that, right? <laughs> because you can't fly. So what would the point of being God telling them you shall have no other gods before me if there were no other gods? Now most mainstream Old Testament scholars believe that the religion of the early Israelites was neither monotheistic nor polytheistic, but was monolatrous. Now monolatry, as we said last week, is the belief in the existence of many gods but with the consistent worship of only one God. And the Jews were monolatrous, not monotheistic. They believed in many gods, but they worshipped the one true God who was Yahweh. And Yahweh existed, they saw, in three persons. Now in that study, I attempted to show that the Trinity is not a new invention. It's not something that came up in the New Testament, but was an idea taught throughout the Tanakh. In Isaiah 63... We see Yahweh, we see the angel of Yahweh, who is the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit. So, in that text, we have all three members of the Godhead. Now, the Trinity is not an invention of Christians, like many think. It was well known in Middle Judaism. The Israelites believed that the second power, which they called it, was Yahweh's essence manifest in a different form. That is the basis of what they call Bininitarianism in Jewish thought. Now, And later, the Spirit of God is spoken of in the same way in Isaiah 63. And we mentioned in our last study that to deny the Trinity is to deny the deity of Christ. These two are connected. You can't separate them. And we talked briefly last time about the deity of Christ. And so for our time this morning, I want us to look further at the subject of the deity of Christ, which is part of Christology. Now, Christology is that part of theology that's concerned with the nature and work of Christ, including such matters as the incarnation, the resurrection, his human and divine natures, and their relationship. Now, today we're just going to focus on the deity of Christ. I said last week that it's my opinion that anyone who denies the deity of Yeshua or the Trinity is not very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. And I think that's important because I think as Christians, if we don't understand, have some kind of an understanding of the Hebrew thought and Hebrew scriptures, we're going to go off base in the New Testament. Everything they taught came from the Hebrew scriptures. Let me ask you this question to get started this morning. What book of the Bible was written specifically for the purpose of bringing men to faith in Christ? Good class, thank you. The Gospel of John says this in John 20, 30, and 31. Now Yeshua did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, 
which are not written in this book. So John said, there's a lot of things he did. Signs that are not written. Now, John specifically focuses on seven signs. We know why the perfect number, the complete number. He said, but these are written. We, don't, we, didn't writ, we didn't get them all, but the ones we wrote, we wrote for this purpose, so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John tells us his twofold purpose for writing, that you may believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, and secondly, by believing, you will have life in His name. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, we find the most important question you will ever face It is the question that Yeshua asked his disciples. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Your eternal destiny depends on how you answer that question. A correct belief in Yeshua is what separates the saved from the damned. And John writes his gospel so people will believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. Now, what does he mean by that? I mean, he tells us earlier in the gospel... um, In John 9, 6 and 7, he says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So this man who was born blind, he's blind from birth, he now sees. And there are more miracles of the giving of sight to the blind recorded of Yeshua than healings of any other category. So what's this miracle tell us? Well, one of the signs of the coming Messiah would be that He would open the eyes of the blind. He would give them sight. Look at Isaiah 35, 5. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Now, in Isaiah chapter 42, He says that the servant of Yahweh, part of His ministry will be to open the eyes of the blind. It is in fulfillment of these prophecies that Yeshua gave sight to the blind. And as the light of the world, He's defeating darkness. Thus, the miracle recorded here has significance for John as one of these seven sign miracles which he employs to point to Yeshua's identity and His Messiahship. But something else is significant about this in the Tanakh, about the opening of men's eyes connected with this ministry of Yahweh. We see this. In Psalm 146.8, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. So we find two things then in this sign, an evidence of the fact that He is Messiah. We see that because the Messiah was predicted to open the eyes. He opens the eyes. But secondly, we see that Messiah is Himself Yahweh. So this is a very important miracle, identifying Him as the one whom Israel has been waiting for. Now, if you don't see the deity of Christ, if you don't see that Yeshua is Yahweh in the Gospel of John, something's wrong with your eyes. Okay, because John is overemphasizing this from beginning to end. Notice what Yeshua said about Himself in John chapter 8 that was read this morning. He says in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, the sin he's talking about here is the sin to refusing to believe in Yeshua and therefore refusing life itself. 
Now, the pronoun he is not in this text. All right, it's added by the translators just so they're trying to help you out so it reads more smoothly for you. But that stuff does damage to texts like this because it's not there, it's not supposed to be there. The text says, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. So what are people to believe? What is he saying that people have to believe so they don't die in their sins? Well, the conditional clause provokes the proper object of faith. He says, if you do not believe that and in the Greek, it's ego a me. I am. Now, this phrase was used in John 6.35 and 8.12 with a predicate. He said, I am the bread of life. And then he said, I am the light of the world. We also see it used in, with other predicate constructions in future verses in John. It was used without a predicate in John 6.20 when Yeshua appeared to the disciples in the storm of in the midst of the sea there, and he says, I am, fear not. So Yeshua is claiming to be I am. He says this over and over through this gospel, all right? And when he does that, he is asserting equality with Yahweh himself, who was revealed to Moses as I am who I am, the self-existent eternal God. We see this in Exodus 3.14. You're all familiar with this passage of the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I am who I am here in the Hebrew is ehia, asher ehia, and it means I am that which exists. The root of ehia is the Hebrew word haya, and haya means to be or to exist so here Elohim tells Moses that his name is Ehiah. But then in the next verse, he said, God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Elohim, again, gives his name to Moses, but this time it is Yahweh. And this is the covenant name of God. He says, this is my name forever. This is the name that is to be remembered. Now, we see in Exodus 3.14, God said, I am who I am. And then in Exodus 3.15, we have the name Yahweh. And he says, this is my name forever. So these two names here, first of all, Yahweh and then Ehiah. They're related. Yahweh is, and Ehiah is. Ehiah means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh means He exists, He will exist, He is. And both these names, they're related to each other. They're both conveying the idea that Yahweh is the self-existing One. Now the prophets, guided by the Holy Spirit, picked up on that phrase and they use it. Isaiah particularly, several times, speaks about the God who has called him to minister as I am. We see this in Isaiah 41.4. He says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am He. So in the Hebrew original, Yahweh discloses himself in the repeated declaration, I am He. And it is this expression that the Septuagint 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament, consistently renders by ego, a me, formally, I am. Now, Isaiah 43.10 is especially close to what scholars call Johannian language. And Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So the Greek Old Testament contains this purpose clause in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Ego eimi. It's the combination of the verb believe and the use of ego eimi in Isaiah 43.10 that causes scholars to believe that this is on Yeshua's mind when he's talking in John 8. This is what he's referring to. And the last part of Isaiah 43.10 seems to be based on Exodus 3.14. The unique and important part of Isaiah 43 comes in verse 11 where the speaker says, I, I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. So here, God is saying, Yahweh is saying, there's no Savior besides me, Yahweh. And yet Yeshua says, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. So what's Yeshua saying? He's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh, there's no Savior besides me. And verse 12 goes on to say, I declare and saved and proclaim, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Now the point of Isaiah 43, 10 through 12 is that I am is the God of salvation. And this appears to be Yeshua's point in John 8, 24. As long as the Jews refused to come to faith in Him, I am, they would not be saved. He said they will die in their sins. Now in Isaiah, the context demands that I am He means I am the same. I am forever the same. And even I am Yahweh. With a different allusion to Exodus 3.14. A definite allusion to Exodus 3.14. Now for others to apply this title to themselves was blasphemous an invitation to face the wrath of God. And yet we see this in Isaiah 47, 8. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. And verse 11 tells us what happens to the one who makes this claim. He says, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. The ruin and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you will know nothing. So he's talking about you're claiming to be I am, that's going to be disastrous for you. You're going to suffer because of that. So for Yeshua to apply such words to himself is to say, I am Yahweh, the only Savior. So when Yeshua tells the Pharisees, who knew Isaiah quite well, I am, using the same phrase that the Lord repeatedly used in Isaiah, He is claiming to be the eternal God. Now please get this. Yeshua is Yahweh. To deny the deity of Christ, to deny that He is in fact Yahweh in the flesh, is to die in your sins. 
Now, if that sounds too strong for you, this is what Yeshua is saying. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This truth that Yeshua is Yahweh is taught from the very first verse of this gospel. If we go back and look at John 1, 1, and, and if you compare John 1, 1 through 4, and Genesis 1, 1 through 4, there's a lot of similarities there, okay? We don't have time to get into all that right now, but I just want to, in the, in the beginning was the Word. So in other words, the Word was already in existence when God created the heavens and the earth. He doesn't say, in the beginning, the Word became, or He came into existence, or He came to be. In fact, He uses the Greek verb, me, which means to be, or to exist. Now, later on in this section, He's going to use the verb, genomai, which means to come to be, to enter into existence. But He doesn't use that verb in connection with the Word. He uses a form of the verb, me that suggests continued existence. At the beginning of eternity, when there was nothing else, the Word existed. Now the Word is used here as a title for Yeshua. The Greek word used for Word is logos, from which we get our word logic or logo or related words. But if you looked at a Greek dictionary, you would not have even touched on what John means to say when he says Yeshua is the Logos. What does John mean by the term Word used in this opening verse? Well, obviously the Word is something, someone or something significant. Now, outside of biblical use, if we see Word, it means you know it's a unit of language, something necessary to communicate verbally and in print. And in biblical use, when we hear that, we think of the Bible being the Word of God. But those in John's day would not have thought about it that way. They thought differently. When a Greek heard the term word or logos, he thought of the philosophical discussions common in his day that explained the order of the world. Henry Morris writes this, In Greek thought, the logos was perceived to be the always existent, rational, stabilizing principle of the universe, creative energy, the ultimate reality, the eternal reason, the supreme principle of the universe, the force that originated and permeated and directed all things. Now, Hebrew would never have agreed or saw it that way. All right, They see the Word of God quite differently. Intertestamental Judaism, and especially in the Targums. Now, the Targums were paraphrases of the Tanakh that translated from the Hebrew into the Aramaic language. They're called the Targums. And they used the expression Word of God as a circumlocation for the name of God. All right? Because of their extreme reverence, you know, for a time, and I really don't even understand why, but for a time, the Jews just stopped using the name of Yahweh because they thought it was not right to use that name. So they used substitutes such as Hashem. We talked about that last time, the name. Or heaven was a substitute for the name of God. Or the Word of God was. And this meant that the phrase Word of God did not mean Scripture for the Jews. That's not what they're thinking of. The, the Jews of Yeshua's time. Rather, that we think of that, we hear Word of God and we think, oh, the Bible, right? It was a reference to God Himself. Alright? The Word. God Himself. Psalms 33.6 By the Word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, 
all their hosts. Now here, the word of Yahweh is said to be the creator of the heavens. And this is what John says of the word in verse 3. He says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So with these opening words of the prologue, John, John Eleazar, traces the origin of the word backward into eternity where God the Son was present with God the Father before time as we know it began. It is what Yeshua expressed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 when he prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So before the world existed, the Word was with the Father. Something that I find really interesting is the use of the Word in the first book of Adam and Eve. And you say, where's that at in the Bible? Well, it's not, okay. But it is a very interesting book. I don't try to encourage people, Christians, to read the Pseudepigrapha because most Christians don't read their Bible. And I'd rather have you read your Bible. But if you're a Christian that reads your Bible, the Pseudepigrapha work is very interesting, especially the first book of Adam and Eve. It was really an emotional read for me because it's the story of, you know, after they get kicked out of the garden, what happens to them? And you see the pain, you see the suffering, you see the agony they're going through because they're separated from God. And they keep trying to get back in the garden, and they can't do it. So it's a really interesting read. Now, many say that the, the, this book of Adam and Eve was created or written down around two to 300 years before Christ. I think it's probably older than that. It might have got written down then. Although uh, there were additions to it into the third century. Now... Of the numerous apocryphal works written, this was one that had seemed to have a great influence on many early theologians, and it was really popular from the 3rd to the 13th century. People referred to this, people understood it. It's a written history of what happened in the days of Adam and Eve after they're cast out of the garden. So, you know, we get the idea from the Bible, they're cast out, okay, life went on. You don't get that from this at all, okay? You see, and again, it, it, I think to me it shows you the damage that sin brings. All right, separation from God. Now, although it's considered pseudepigraphic by some, it carries significant meaning and insight into the events of that time. And there seems to be basically three heavenly beings that interact with Adam and Eve in the book. All right, we see God in the book, we see his angels, and we see the Word of God. God is usually the one speaking, but when action is taken, he sends angels or the Word of God to do it. Plus, at times, God says the plan, the plan with Adam and Eve is to eventually send His Word in the flesh and save them. The Word of Yahweh, as used in the Tanakh, was the visual manifestation of Yahweh. And as I said in our last study, the Hebrew Scriptures taught a second Yahweh. Well, the first book of Adam and Eve collaborates this idea. In chapter 3, 15 and 16, it said, And the Word of Yahweh came to Adam and Eve and raised them up. And Yahweh said to Adam, I told you that at the end of the five and a half days, I will send my word and save you. So here we see that the word is capitalized and it comes to Adam and Eve. And then, it, then he says, Yahweh says, so you got the word of God there and you've got Yahweh there just like you do throughout the Tanakh. And we saw that in our last study. 
Chapter 26 of this book, 2 and 3, says, When we were on the mountains, we were comforted by the Word of God. That talked to us. That doesn't mean they're sitting there reading the Bible. Oh, we love reading. You know, they didn't have a Bible, okay? The Word of God came to them. This is, this is the Lord Christ, all right? He talked to us, and the light came from the east, shone over us. But now the Word of God is hidden from us, and the light that shines. So it's, it's interesting that they connect the Word of God in association with the light here, because John does that same thing. In verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So when John says, In the beginning was the Word, he's not talking about Greek philosophy. He's talking about the second Yahweh that's seen throughout the Tanakh and in the Pseudepigrapher writings. His readers would have realized that that second power was Yeshua. And Yeshua was Yahweh in human flesh. John goes on to say, And the Word was with God. Now, the English really doesn't pick up the significant implication here of the Greek. It might be better translated, the Word was face-to-face with God. The relationship of Yeshua the Word and God was more than a a side-by-side. It was face-by-face relationship, indicating far more intimacy than simply being co-workers. And I think this paints the picture that the Father and the Son enjoyed intimate fellowship with each other throughout eternity, being continually face-to-face as it were. He says, the Word was with God. Now, the theological importance of these words is that they distinguish God the Word from God the Father. In other words, John is telling us that although the Godhead is one holy eternal being, God the Word and God the Father are not the same person. Look at John 17, 25. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. So he's praying to the Father, okay? And he's telling they're two separate people. They're not the same. So when he says, was with God... That prohibits us from seeing no distinction between the Father and the Word. This with infers a relationship, an interface, an interaction between two distinct persons. There's the distinction. The Son, the Word, is distinct from the Father. Now, this first verse in John destroys modalism. Are you familiar with modalism? Modalism denies the distinction of the persons in the Trinity. And says that it's all just God, one person, but he manifests himself in different, you know, he puts on the son suit and then he's a son, and then he puts on the father suit and he's the father, then he puts on the Holy Spirit. It's just one person, you know, playing different roles. Okay, that's not what the Bible teaches, all right? He's not operating in different modes, it is different persons. The truth is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all three the same essence, but they are three separate distinct beings. The Trinity is not three gods. It's three persons of the one true God. Now, John Eliezer goes on in the last phrase, uh, verse 1, to say the Word was God. That can't get much clearer, people. All right? In fact, these four Greek words may be the clearest declaration of the deity of Yeshua in all Scripture. It's kai theos ein logos. And John uses the imperfect tense of ain of the verb amy. So the Greek verb amy was means to be or exist 
and suggests continued existence. So the Word always existed as Yahweh. John doesn't say, and the Word was divine. Or the Word was kind of like God. He makes the bold statement, the Word was God. And here he leaves no room for anyone to see Yeshua as less than God in some way or to some degree. The Word was God. John Phillips writes this, that is, his essence in what he actually is, in his nature, person, and personality, in his attributes and character, Jesus is all that God is. All the essential characteristics of deity are his. Herbert Lockyer writes this, what a tremendous phrase this is, the word was God. I like what he says here. He says, language has no meaning if these four words do not clearly teach that Christ is very God of very God. All right? So the Word was God. The Word literally was Yahweh. Yeshua is God in a body, nothing less. Look what he dropped down to verse 14, and he tells us the Word, this Word that is God became flesh. This is the incarnation. And dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Yeshua is God in a body. He's the full, mysterious deity of Christ, exemplified in humility and unbelievable condescension. And so at the very beginning... John lays it down that Yeshua is the living Word. He alone is the perfect revelation of Yahweh. Now let's look at several other instances where Yeshua clearly claimed to be God. In chapter 5, Yeshua heals the man who was at the pool of Bethesda. And this guy had been there for 38 years. And so our Lord commands him, get up, pick up your pal, and walk. And immediately the man's healed, and he takes his bed, and he walks. And this is the healing of the paralytic at the pool there, but it draws considerable attention to our Lord. This miracle caused a lot of problems. Anybody remember why this was such a problem for him to do this? It was on a Sabbath, okay? I mean, yeah, you can do miracles, that's fine, but don't do them on the Sabbath. I mean, don't even take into account that he just healed this man. Oh, no, you can't, do, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Oh, so the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they viewed Yeshua as a lawbreaker because of that. The healing of this lame man and the following Sabbath controversy have brought the nature and identity of Yeshua to a climax. And here Yeshua answers them and says, My father is working until now, and I'm working. So what he's doing here, Yeshua is justifying his Sabbath healing by reminding the Jews that they admitted that Yahweh worked on the Sabbath. And they knew the sun came up, and they knew the wind blew, and the rain fell, and the grass grew, and Yahweh continued to do His work of judgment and His work of redemption. They knew Yahweh worked on the Sabbath. And this explains the violence of their reaction in verse 18. The Sabbath privilege was peculiar to Yahweh, And no one in their mind was equal to Yahweh. So in claiming the right to work, even as his father worked, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh. The I Am. 
Now, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He is saying that as the eternal God does his work all the time, so he's claiming to do the same thing, to work the same pattern that Yahweh works. This shocked and it angered the Jewish leaders. But it really shouldn't surprise us, especially after just looking at John 1.1. Okay? He is God. That's why he claims this. Look at John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This guy just performs a miracle. Well, let, their result is, let's kill him because he did it on the wrong day. Okay, you talk about blindness? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling him, his own fa- God, his own father, making himself equal to God. So Yeshua's contemporaries clearly see him as claiming to be equal with God. They knew what he was saying. There's never any question in the Jewish minds that he's saying to be God. They got that. That was the ultimate blasphemy to them. They said he makes himself equal to God. Now notice something very important that's not in this text. Yeshua doesn't respond by saying, oh, no, 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 you guys, you got me all wrong. I'm not claiming to be God. No, I know I'm just a man. No, I'm a prophet. I'm, no, that would be blasphemy. I am not saying that. Instead of disagreeing with them, Yeshua's response in this text is to defend his deity. He claimed to be Yahweh, not to be another God equal to Yahweh, but to be Yahweh. In verse 23, he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So he's claiming, he said, listen, if you honor the Father, the Son gets the exact same honor as the Father. You can receive the same honor. If you don't honor the Son, he's telling them, you're not honoring the Father. Now this would have just drove them absolutely crazy. And how can Yeshua say this in light of Isaiah 42, 8? I am Yahweh, that's my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. So Yahweh is saying, I'm not going to share my honor with another. So for him to share his honor with the Son must mean that the Son and the Father are one in essence. What man or what created being could say that we should honor them just as we honor the Father? Clearly Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh. And when you hear someone say, Well, Yeshua never claimed to be God. What? They don't know the Bible very well, okay? Over and over, Yeshua claims to be Yahweh. He does it all through this text. He insists that He is to be worshipped in the same way that Yahweh is worshipped. He is to be honored, praised, adored, respected, trusted, obeyed, the same way as God the Father. So when the person says, Yeshua is not God of very God, He's not only not honoring the Son, but He's dishonoring the Father. And that's a serious thing. So when a man says, God is God, but Yeshua, He's only the Son of God, or He's less in some way, denying the honor of the Father by not honoring the Son. He's dishonoring God the Father. That's what He says. And this can imagine what the Jews would have thought of when He's saying this stuff to them. You've got to honor me just like you honor God. Paul understood very clearly 
that Yeshua was Yahweh. Let's look at this text in Philippians 2. This is one of the, I don't know, deepest doctrinal texts on the incarnation, on the hypostatic union, the theanthropic person. But what's interesting is most scholars believe this part of Philippians 2 here was a Christian hymn in the early church. That tells you a little bit about the theology they had, and they're singing their theology, which is really good because people remember songs a lot better than they remember other things, all right? So this is, but what really blows my mind about this text is that he uses this deep theology about the incarnation as an example of humility. And he's telling the Philippians, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Christ didn't worry about being God so much that he hung on to every, you know. He, he said, you love one another. You care for one another. You take esteem one another better than yourselves. Have the mind of Christ. So he's using this beautiful doctrinal section as an illustration of humility and calling the Philippians to follow, follow it. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Yeshua, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, he says here, was in. This is the Greek word huparko, and this is not the commonest word for being in the Greek. That would be a me, but it's a verb that stresses the essence of a person's nature. It's to express the continued state of a thing. It's unalterable. It's unchangeable. So Paul said Yeshua unalterably and unchangeably exists in the form of God. This speaks of his pre-existence. The word form here is morphe, and it has nothing to do with shape or size. Moulton and Milligan say that morphe is a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. It refers to the essence or essential being. Yeshua pre-existed in the essence of God. So when Paul uses huparko, was, and morphe, form, he is saying something very specific. He is saying that Yeshua the Christ has always existed in the unchangeable essence of the being of God. Yeshua the Christ is God and always was. This is the heart and soul of the Christian faith. Yeshua is Yahweh. Yeshua the Christ is eternal God. And as part of the Trinity, He always existed. He is co-eternal with God, co-equal with God. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.9, Paul writes, For in Him, the whole fullness, speaking of Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The word dwells here comes from the Greek katoikao, and it means to settle down and be at home. And the present tense indicates that the essence of deity continually abides in Christ. He is fully God forever. So what is it that permanently indwells Christ? the whole fullness of the deity. The Greek word translated deity here is theates. It's an ontological word that means it has the idea of essence, essential nature, or essential being. The essential ontological nature of Yeshua the Christ is what? Is deity. He is Yahweh. I think another cool example that you see in the New Testament that most people absolutely miss, because we'll talk about it in a second here. I don't want to give my answers away like Mike did. <laughs> but in Luke 19, 9 and 10, 
It says, And Yeshua said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is the son of Abraham. He's talking to Zacchaeus. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So let me ask you, do you see the deity of Christ in that statement? Nobody sees the deity of Christ in that statement? Well, you, you would see it if you're familiar with Ezekiel. Okay? Because the background of the statement is Ezekiel 34. Which, in that text, God, He's angry with the leaders of Israel for scattering and harming the flock, the people of Israel. And He states that He Himself will become a shepherd and will seek the lost and deliver or save them. Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares Yahweh. I will seek the lost. So who's speaking here? It's Yahweh. Yahweh say, I'm going to seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I'm going to deliver them. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So we look at Ezekiel, it says, God, Yahweh says, I'll seek the lost. And we get to Luke, and Yeshua says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And what did everyone who knew the Scriptures hear Yeshua say here? I'm Yahweh. I've come to fulfill this prophecy in Ezekiel. I've come to seek and save the lost. And they would realize, who's Yeshua saying? He's saying he's Yahweh. Now, I, I've told you this before, but it's a quote worth using. David Flusher, who was a devout Orthodox Jew, and when I say that, he wasn't an ethnic Jew because there is none. He was a religious Jew, okay? He was professor of early Christianity and Judaism of Second Temple period at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And Flusser said this, You poor Christians, you wonder why the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God more often. It says it all the time. You just don't understand Jewish thought. That's the bottom line, people. We don't know the Hebrew text. We're not familiar with that. So we just, oh, no, he's not saying it. He's saying it over and over in all these different ways. You know, things that the Lord, Yahweh quoted in the Tanakh. And then Yeshua comes along and says, that's me. I'm fulfilling that. Let me give you one more. Revelation 1.8. I, I am the Aleph and the Omega. There's no way I believe Yeshua said that. You say, ah, don't you believe in inspiration? Yeah, but he didn't. He wasn't speaking Greek, okay? This would not meant a whole lot of people uh, to the Hebrews, all right? I think Yeshua, what Yeshua said here is, I am Aleph and Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And what he's saying by that is he's saying, I am from eternity to eternity, the beginning to the last, because that's how the Jews would express the whole compass of things by the Aleph and Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So if we go back to Isaiah, we read this. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I'm the first, I'm the last, besides me, there's no God. So in light of Isaiah, clearly Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh of hosts, the only living and true God. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And this is a quote 
from Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The chief point of the citation is to contrast sharply the deity and eternal dominion of the Son, the quotation in Hebrews, with the subservience and mutability of the angels. He's saying the angels serve, He reigns. He is God. And I believe that verse 8 in Hebrews 1 supplies us with one of the most powerful, clear, emphatic, and irrefutable proofs of the deity of Christ in the Bible. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Those who would deny the deity of Christ, they got to come up with verses, right? You can't just deny it and say, I just don't like it. Well, you could, but that's not. So they'll use verses, and one of the verses they use, John 14, 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away. I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I say, "Uh uh-huh, see? The Father's greater. They're not the same. They're not equal. Well, that's what happens when you don't understand the incarnation, when you don't understand the theanthropic person, when you don't understand the hypostatic union. You come up with things like that, all right? But here's the thing. I would hope that in light of all we've seen thus far in this gospel, that we would realize that when Yeshua says, for the Father is greater than I, he's not saying he's less than God. He's not saying he's inferior to God. This phrase has caused a lot of Christological and Trinitarian debate throughout church history. And it's this phrase that was used as a spoof text. That's a Bible verse you pull out of context to prove your point. A spoof text. For those who held to Arianism, all right, the Arians would use this as one of their main texts. Well, to understand the phrase, the Father is greater than I, we have to begin with the primary rule of hermeneutics, which is Scripture interprets Scripture, the analogy of faith. That's the primary rule, all right? Scripture interprets Scripture. What it means is no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what was clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. And so what we've seen so far clearly tells us Yeshua is Yahweh. We've seen that over and over. So we can't throw everything out over a statement that, well, we're not, what's he mean? Father's greater than I. Well, that's what we have to figure out. We can't just throw out everything we've learned so far. Yeshua is speaking of himself here in his humanity. That's really important to understand. In his limited capacity as a human being. All right, now there's, we could get really deep here, but basically when Christ was a man, he was the God-man. He walked this earth as a man. He didn't depend on deity, okay? He didn't say, watch, I can do this, I can do that. He walked in the power of the Holy Spirit, dependent on the Spirit of God for everything he did. Therefore, he's our example. That's how we're to live the Christian life. Everything we do is to be in dependence upon God. So when he says, for the Father is greater than I, he's not speaking ontologically here, dealing with his essential being, his nature. Since he had stated repeatedly that he and the Father were one ontologically. He's speaking of the Father's relative glory compared to his glory. See, Yeshua had laid aside the heavenly glory in the incarnation. So the Father 
had greater glory than the Son during Yeshua's earthly ministry. If we go back to Philippians 2 again, and look at verse 7, it says, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. He's talking about the humility of Christ. He emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. Now the word but here is contrastive, not this but this. And then He says He emptied Himself. This is the Greek word kanao. This is where we get the doctrine of the kenosis. It means to make empty. Figuratively, it means to abase, to neutralize, to make of none effect, or no reputation. Now here's the question that people argue about since the Bible was written. What did Yeshua empty himself of? Okay, I would go along with that. He laid aside the prerogatives of deity, all right? He can't empty himself of deity because then he'd cease to exist. Because he was deity. You can't say, oh, stop being deity. You're gone, okay? What did he exchange? He did, what he did, he didn't exchange his deity for humanity. I'll trade this in and I'll take this one, okay? He didn't do that. And that, again, we get into the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union teaches that Christ had two natures, human and divine, in one person. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. He's 100% God and 100% man. Right. Who else is like that? Nobody. Okay, he's the only one. He's the theanthropic person. That's God-man, theanthropic. He's the God-man. He didn't empty himself of the attributes of deity because it's impossible to surrender an attribute without changing the character of the essence to which it belongs. And God can't change. He's immutable. So what did he empty himself of? Well, in John 17, 5, he prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In His incarnation, Yeshua temporarily laid aside the glory that He shared with the Father from all eternity. And He's asking here to have His glory restored because His glory was put aside when He became man. This is what, again, this is a complicated issue, this whole thing of the incarnation. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we can't have 100% of two things at the same time. All right, But this is God. He laid aside the prerogatives of deity. He laid aside the glory. And He walked this earth as a man in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you one more. Now, I said that before, but we could go on forever and ever on this subject because the Bible is just loaded with these. All right? But look at 1 Corinthians 10, 2-4. And all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud, in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. All right, the word spiritual refers to the origin of this food and drink. At the beginning and the end of their journey, they were taken care of spiritually, supernaturally. They drank from the water that came out of the rock. And Paul says this, the rock was Christ. That's interesting. Behind the supernatural supply of water, he say, was Christ. So Paul here transfers to Christ a title that is in the Tanakh commonly used of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The Tanakh often speaks of the rock of Israel, referring to both his protection and his provision. That is probably the most common name of God given throughout the Tanakh. He's the rock. 
He's the rock. Again, he's speaking of his protection, speaking of his provision. You know, you ask the Hebrew, describe God to me. Tell me about God. If you said that to an English, you know, one of us, tell me about God. God is love. What is that? Can you see that? you understand that? Is it, you got a concept of what is that? But you ask a Hebrew, they wouldn't say God is love, God is... They'd say God is a rock. Now, you, can, you understand that, right? This is a rock. That's how they visualize. That's how they saw it. Okay, God is a rock, and that's one of the, again, the, the most used terms of him throughout. But here Paul calls Yeshua the rock, recognizing, again, the deity of Christ, the same Christ who supplied all the physical and spiritual needs of Israel is the same God who meets all our needs, all right? Every one of them. His provision for them never failed as they walked through that wilderness. Christ was the rock. Providing all their needs. He's the same for us people. He's our rock. He provides everything we need. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, writes this. Although our finite minds cannot comprehend the mystery of the Trinity, Scripture is clear that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. Each person is fully God, and yet He is not three gods, but one God. So, believers, to deny the Trinity is to deny the deity of Christ. And if Christ is not God, then we're dead in our sins. Because that would mean a man died for us, and a man can't die for us because men are sinners. All men are sinners. Christ didn't have sin, therefore He took our sin. Complicated subject, I know, but worth our time looking into. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word, Lord. I pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would not accept or reject things like this we hear, but we would study them, Lord, to see if they are so. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I pray we'd cling to it with all our hearts, Lord. Thank you for all you've given us in this day and age, that opportunities, resources, that we can study the truth of your word. 